Pacifica Radio, this is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Today, as we approach Super Tuesday next week, we're thinking, of course, about Bernie and about Elizabeth Warren. Later in this hour, pundits have declared that Warren is finished, but we're not so sure. While Warren came in third in Iowa and fourth in New Hampshire and Nevada, only 100 delegates have been selected, while more than 1,900 are necessary to win. Eventually, progressives and moderates in the party will have to come together. Could Warren be the unity candidate? Joan Walsh takes up that question later in the show. Also, some time away from Trump. John Sayles has directed two dozen films, including Mate One and Lone Star. Today he talks about his new novel, Yellow Earth. It's about what happens when shale oil is discovered underneath an Indian reservation in the North Dakota Badlands, and outsiders descend. But first, what Bernie has already won. Trump Watch starts right now. Bernie has already won the ideas primary. For that, we turn to Robert Borisage. He created a range of progressive organizations, including most recently the Campaign for America's Future, Progressive Majority, and ProgressiveCongress.org. He guided the Institute for Policy Studies for nearly a decade. His articles have been published by Reuters, The Huffington Post, The Washington Post, and The New York Times. And he's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation. Bob Borisage, welcome back. My pleasure. Well, Bernie is coming under furious attack by the Democratic Party establishment. What do you mean when you say Bernie has already won the ideas primary? What is the ideas primary? <laughs> the ideas primary is a, is a phrase that the nation actually dubbed, which is the competition among uh, candidates early to define themselves and their agenda and present that to the American people. And what happened in this year's ideas primary is there's no question that Sanders, with the assistance of Elizabeth Warren, uh, really defined the issues uh, and the debate for the Democratic Party. The moderates and centrists really have spent their time responding to the Sanders agenda, you know, not Medicare for all, but Medicare for all who choose, or it's a little too extreme and we can do it. We can do that, but we have to get there more slowly. But what's stunning is Sanders has put basic large ideas, Medicare for all, tuition-free college, taking on the trade accords, taxes on the rich, et cetera, and has made them really almost consensus positions among the candidates, even as they try to distinguish themselves as more moderate or less extreme than uh, Bernie himself. Well, let's, let's look at some of the specifics here. We don't see just kind of a differences of opinion, but this this furious uh, hostility, uh, I was struck by New York Times uh, op-ed columnist Tom Friedman, who wrote last week, now this is a, a Democrat writing, quote, Bernie Sanders wants to take away the private health coverage of 150 million Americans and replace it with a gigantic untested Medicare for all program, which he'd also extend to illegal immigrants. This is not just saying a public option would be a better interim solution. This is really an all-out attack, isn't it? 
Well, it's both an all-out attack, and if you ask Friedman what his position is, it would be for a public option, which he used to not support (laughs) as a transition to Medicare for all. The all-out attack is certainly true. Uh, As soon as Sanders started the surge, the establishment of the party and the deep pockets of the party made it clear this is totally unacceptable. And the level of hysteria is growing. And so I think you're going to see these attacks on Sanders. You've already started to see them get more and more hysterical, more and more extreme, both in the mainstream media and from the other candidates, and particularly from the Democratic establishment, the operatives and the grifters and the the kind of pros who define the Democratic Party, who have a lot to lose if an insurgent like Bernie Sanders uh, gets the nomination and and, uh, starts to take over the party. The other thing we hear from the establishment Democrats is that Bernie's campaign is raising false hopes because even if the Democrats win the White House and regain control of the Senate, Congress is not going to pass any of Bernie's programs. We're not going to get Medicare for all, and it's very dangerous to promise this to young Americans. Yeah, God forbid we give anybody hope. (laughs) (laughs) But the irony of that to me is Of all of the candidates, Sanders is the most grimly realistic. That is, you know, Biden says the way he's going to get his minuscule agenda passed is that Republicans will have an epiphany when he's elected (laughs) and will start to cooperate with them, which they certainly did with the uh, Obama administration where he was vice president, where they blocked (laughs) literally everything. Klobuchar says she's got experience working across the aisle and she can get bipartisan bills done. That's certainly belied by everything Mitch McConnell has done over the last years. What Sanders said is, look, these are programs, you know, private health care, the pharmaceutical industry, the military industrial complex. We have these priorities because deeply entrenched interests are behind them. And the only way to change that is not simply electing a president, but creating a citizens, aroused citizens movement that forces politicians either to change their position get out of the way or uh, get beat. And so he's argued you've got to build a political revolution. That is a movement that keeps building after the election and puts immense force on the Congress and forces them to change positions. That's, you know, hard to do. It's a formidable task, but it is surely much more realistic than waiting for Republicans to have an epiphany. And they also say Bernie can't win because he's a socialist and Americans don't like socialism. Well, I think one of the ironies of the Sanders campaign is that as he keeps running from 2016 now, he's got first he's got the whole millennial generation, a majority of them liking socialism, and he's making it more and more popular. But the reality is, you know, Sanders is not a take over the the heights of the economy, uh, nationalize everything socialist. He's basically, in European terms, a social democrat. And his, his agenda is the unfinished agenda of Franklin Roosevelt, health care for all, jobs, affordable housing, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so this is an incredibly popular agenda piece by piece. And I think people are, uh, no doubt, Republicans and Sanders opponents, uh, you're going to hear an awful lot about Sanders being a communist. And you've already got Chris Matthews saying that there's going to be executions and uh, public parks. And, <laughs> I mean, unbelievable nonsense. But I think people are, I don't think people are comfortable with the label socialist, but I think they are going to get more and more comfortable with the elements of Sanders' program. Well, we have managed not to talk about Michael Bloomberg thus far, the personification of big money in politics and of the 
the Wall Street wing of the Democratic Party. He's okay with gay rights. He fights the gun lobby. He supports environmental organizations. He's for a public option on, on health care. Recently, he says equality is his major focus, getting uh, redressing inequality, which is sort of hilarious. Uh, yeah, and he, he said just in the last week or two, he's for more financial regulation of the big banks and, and uh, <laughs> Wall Street. We are laughing because this hasn't been his position in the past. On the other hand, there's this new poll we're speaking here on Tuesday afternoon that has Bloomberg in second place nationally among Democratic voters. Bernie 31, Bloomberg 19, Biden 15, Warren 12. Is this going to work for Bloomberg? Two things about that. One is Bloomberg's uh, new positions are a sign of how much Sanders has dominated the ideas primary. Bloomberg finds it necessary to tack to the Sanders uh, position rather than hold the positions that he's held for the last uh, 50 years of his life. The second thing about it is we don't really know what happens when somebody's prepared to spend and does spend half a billion, a billion dollars. I mean, he's spent $350 million and he hasn't even been in a primary yet. It, it, it clearly is having an effect in the polls. We'll see how, uh, how he survives once he's, uh, he's in the next debate, I understand, part, partly as a, the power of his money. And uh, we'll see how he survives once he's uh, an actual candidate. But it, it does seem frighteningly likely that, that he is about to consolidate the quote-unquote center-right position of the Democratic Party and, and be in that lane against Sanders or Warren, and it increasingly looks like Sanders as the, uh, uh, carrying the progressive banner. So you think we're going to end up with a choice between Bernie and Bloomberg? That, that certainly is sort of represents the two wings of the Democratic Party right now. <laughs> it's, it's terrifying to think that that's where we would end up. Bloomberg's rise in the polls, I think, is quite stunning. On the other hand, if you are in any of these states, California, Texas, Florida, you can't watch a television set without seeing a Bloomberg ad. We've really never seen any kind of spending like this ever. And so... Does it have an effect to an inattentive public? Sure, apparently the polls show that. Will it have an effect to voters once they start to pay attention and decide who they're going to vote for in the primary? That remains to be seen. Robert Borisage, his new article is What We Already Owe to Bernie Sanders. You can read it at thenation.com. Bob, thanks so much for talking with us today. My pleasure. Take care now. I'm John Wiener, and this is Trump Watch and the Trump Watch podcast. We'll have more in a minute. When Trump Watch continues. Same old story back again. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Next up, Elizabeth Warren. Pundits on both the progressive and moderate sides of the party say she is finished, but we're not so sure. For that, we turn to Joan Walsh. She, of course, is national affairs correspondent for the nation and a political analyst on CNN. Joan, welcome back. Glad to be back. Thanks, John. Well, my starting point is, yes, Warren came in third in Iowa and fourth in New Hampshire. But the pundits who are declaring that Warren is finished are missing a lot. There have been exactly two nominating contests for the party's presidential nomination, both in 
deeply unrepresentative states, Iowa and New Hampshire. 64 delegates have been selected. There's about 1,900 to go. So what is the case for Warren at this point, given her poor showing, especially in New Hampshire? Well, I think New Hampshire made, made life a lot harder for Elizabeth Warren since it is her neighboring state, and she did expect to do better there. But I think, you know, she was set up to do poorly in New Hampshire by the way she was treated coming out of Iowa and the way, you know, I have argued in the pages of The Nation for that week or so, she was essentially erased from coverage. It took its toll. You know, the, the traditional cliche is, There are three tickets out of of Iowa that people who finish in the top three are considered to have done well, and the rest often wind up dropping out fairly quickly in the past. But none of that happened. The story was appropriately, I suppose, Joe Biden's disappointing collapse and the, you know, essential photo finish between Bernie and Pete Buttigieg. But but Warren basically got got left out of that, even though she did place a respectable third. You know, and and that kind of uh, media erasure made it hard for her going into New Hampshire. I'm not going to pretend uh, that her that her fourth place finish there was anything but disappointing, and I, you know could make it hard for her to raise money. Uh, however, she, you know she's got a still strong ground game and very passionate support. So I think it is kind of crazy to be writing her off so early in the game. The case that she and many of her supporters have been making is that she could be the unity candidate. There have been these polls that show she's the second choice of both the Bernieites and the supporters of uh, Joe Biden and Mayor Pete. But of course, right now, neither the Bernieites nor the so-called moderates are looking for unity. They're, they want to win. They want to defeat her. And, of course, that's what politics is about. On the other hand, nobody is getting 50%. Nobody is getting close to 50%. So is this unity appeal viable at this point? I think we have to see. You know, I think, I think it's too early to say that it is not. But as you say, it's too early right now for people to be looking to unify. People want to win, and that's understandable. And then we have the specter of, of two billionaires buying their way into this. Uh, you know, this has become a huge problem for her because also in the semi-progressive lane, you have Tom Steyer, who is a billionaire, California hedge, hedge fund manager turned philanthropist. Steyer is uh, buying his way into contention in both Nevada and South Carolina, where Warren had hoped to do well due to organizing and policy. Uh, And then we see that Michael Bloomberg is buying himself into contention in the Super Tuesday states. So there's not a world in which it's, uh, it's possible to say that those two billionaires aren't making things even tougher for her. But, you know, if, if, if ground game ultimately, ultimately matters, people are down the road looking for unity. She should stay in there as long as she can afford to because nobody knows what's going to happen. Well, obviously, we need to talk about Bloomberg. But, but first, I want to talk about the Nevada caucuses, which are, are next week. The most recent poll, we're speaking here on Tuesday, shows Warren coming in second. Bernie way ahead at 35. Seems indisputable that 
He's going to win Nevada. Then Warren at 16. This poll shows Biden at 15, Mayor Pete at 14. And Tom Steyer, despite his expenditures, far behind at 10. Klobuchar at 8. This poll is from Data for Progress. What do you make of this? You know, it's just one poll. I, I, I like them. They've been they've been pretty reliable, but she's not placing that high in other polls. I mean, this poll may be finding some recent movement on her part, um, but, you know, I, I, I don't know what's going to happen. I think it's also very weird that Bloomberg is not on the ballot in Nevada, but he is going to be, and I, and I welcome this development, actually, he is going to be on the podium at the debate Wednesday night, and I think his role is putting so much in flux, even in these states where he's not competing. And indeed, there's a new poll out today. Again, we're speaking on Tuesday, which has a national poll of Democrats, which has Bloomberg in second place. Bernie with 31, Bloomberg with 19, Biden 15, Warren 12, Amy Klobuchar 9, Pete Buttigieg 8. So Bloomberg's money is buying substantial support, it appears. But of course, this is before he's been challenged, as you say, in any of the debates. That's right. You know, and he he also has not been doing a whole ton of media. He's been sitting down for for short interviews. I've called him the phantom of the primary because he's (laughs) hiding behind his ads and he's hiding behind his money and he's hiding behind, you know, a, a very significant roster of endorsements from moderate to even liberal elected officials, many of whom owe their elections, at least partly to him. You know, Michael Bloomberg spent over $100 million in the 2018 midterms. And you're now seeing people that he funded, like Max Rose of New York, Lucy McBath of suburban Atlanta, Haley Stevens of Michigan, a a number of other 2018 first-term folks endorsing him. I'm not saying it's mainly that he supported them politically, although I think that has a lot to do with it. I think some of these people are relatively moderate, you know, or, or at least in the moderate lane of the Democratic Party, and they are frankly concerned about having a Bernie Sanders at the top of the ticket. So there are a combination of factors leading a lot of, uh, in, in some ways, surprising folks to endorse Bloomberg. But again, those people aren't running. Television ads don't run. He's going to have to come out and personally meet the voters and uh, debate his, his rivals. And I think that's going to be very interesting. I, think, I don't think that Michael Bloomberg in person is going to be as compelling as his TV and web ads are, I mean, they are frankly amazing. They are, there's at least one a day that goes viral and makes everyone laugh and you shake your head and just think, wow, that's a lot of creativity. But again, that's not what people ultimately vote for. And maybe he's become more charismatic since uh, I last saw him, but he's not, he doesn't exude charisma. He's a He's rather a know-it-all. He's rather arrogant uh, in his public presentations. He's rather arrogant, I believe, privately. Uh, so it, it, it remains to be seen whether people will resonate with Mike Bloomberg, the human uh, actual candidate, and not this figure spending a lot of money on very clever media. Bloomberg's uh, greatest vulnerability with the Democratic electorate, of course, is his terrible record regarding minorities in New York City, his his outspoken support for stop and frisk. 
On the other hand, as you say, he's contributed a lot of money to black mayors in Democratic cities, and dozen of them are now lining up behind him saying he's not really that bad on black people and blacks should vote for him. And presumably black mayors have some political clout uh, with the black voting public. I think, you know, especially the black community that tends to be very pragmatic voters because they suffer the most, arguably, under, uh, you know, authoritarian conservative like Donald Trump. And so that accounted for very strong evidence of, of black support for Joe Biden. That accounted for Joe Biden being perceived and described as the electable candidate, but as Biden has met the voters, most of them white, so we'll still see. But, you know, as Biden has has lost in these first two white states, you've seen his support with black voters begin to crumble. Um, because if, if he doesn't have electability, well, he's a nice guy and he was Barack Obama's number two. But if he can't beat Trump, if he can't win this primary, then black voters are going to go elsewhere. So you are seeing more of them t- take another look at at Mayor Mike, and, you know, they may find a way to make peace with his terrible history on on stop and frisk. And it's not merely the policy. He inherited the policy from uh, Rudy Giuliani, but he ratcheted it way up. And he also defended it uh, as recently as a few years ago in incredibly crass and, and frankly racist terms. One could defend it as a matter of data, as a matter of, as his defenders do, hey, you know, it also kept a lot of black people alive. And, you know, crime, crime was bad in those neighborhoods. But when you have to listen to his own words, demeaning and diminishing young black men, they just don't know how to behave. They don't know how to hold jobs. That's where the crime is. So just, you know, Xerox their, this description and send the cops out with it. Uh, it's, it's cavalier. It's racist. It's, it's not merely a kind of bloodless focus on data. It's also a, a very uh, bloody, you know, investment in a certain kind of stereotype of young black men. I think that's going to be very hard uh, once they're familiar with it for a lot of black voters to, to forgive. But, but it's possible. They've had to forgive quite a lot over the, the centuries. Yes, yes, they have. Getting back to Elizabeth Warren, There's also the issue lurking in the background of whether a woman can win in 2020. Do you worry about that? Yes, I I worry about it. On the other hand, I I look back, covered uh, 2018, and I look at at the uh, women, all the women who, who won congressional races, as well as, you know, state legislative races in that blue wave powered largely by women. So I think we worry about it. We talk about it. Um, you know, victims of sexism are, are among the only victims uh, who are told that they make their own victimization worse by discussing it. So we're not supposed to discuss it or else we make it a bigger issue. I don't, it's kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. But it's out there as an issue, and yet I think a lot of women are pushing back on it. Joan Walsh, reader at thenation.com. Thank you, Joan. Always great to have you on the show. Great to be with you, John.
It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Now we get to talk with John Sayles. He's directed more than two dozen films and written a dozen more, starting with Return of the Secaucus 7. My favorites are City of Hope and Passion Fish, both with Angela Bassett, and Lone Star with Chris Cooper, Chris Christofferson, Matthew McConaughey, and Elizabeth Pena. His screenplay for that film won a dozen awards. He's also written five novels. One of them, Union Dues, was nominated for a National Book Award, as well as a National Book Critics Circle Award. One more thing, he's a MacArthur genius. And now he has a new novel out. It's called Yellow Earth. John Sales, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm, I'm a former genius. It's run out in five years. <laughs> okay. Well, this is a story about what happens when shale oil is discovered underneath an Indian reservation in the North Dakota Badlands and outsiders descend. It's clear from this book that you know a lot, not only about how fracking works, but also about tribal politics, about cops on the Great Plains, about the lives of long-haul truck drivers, about even about how to run a pole dancing establishment, and about the medication for sick cattle. Clearly, a lot of research went into this book. Uh, let's start there. Yeah. I, uh, one of the nice things about doing research now is that um, you still can go and track people down and talk to them if they're still alive, if it's a contemporary book. But the internet, if you want to know how to skin a muskrat, there's at least three people who have made... <laughs> totally acceptable and sometimes very good videos uh, about how to do that. So there's a lot of virtual research that you can do where you actually see pictures as well as, you know, hear about things. But I, I also, once I establish a character, I'm interested in what characters do for work, what the ins and outs of that work is. And so very often you proceed as as if you were going to start a pole dancing establishment <laughs> and you, you know, find the magazines that sell the bar stools and the rugs and, you know, the black light and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and it gives you ideas. The locals in your story are offered, of course, the chance to get a lot of money by selling the mineral rights. You, you obviously have your sympathies and we have the same sympathies, but the book is fascinating in part because somehow you give a fair hearing to the people we consider the bad guys, the oil companies and their shills. How did you do that? How hard was it for you? It, it wasn't hard. I mean, people have their jobs. Uh, they make their peace with it one way or the other. Um, the landsman who, the landman, who's the guy who, who buys leases, he's not a salesman, but he actually is selling the company that he represents. He's talking people into making money. If he does it well, they'll make less money than they would if, if they waited three weeks or three months or whatever. Um, and somehow he has to have made his peace with that. I really actually have no problem with any kind of drilling. It's just that those companies should pay for the mess they make. And and one of the things that, that happens very often, and not just the oil industry is, these days, is that uh, people subcontract. And they subcontract, and then that subcontractor subcontracts that. And what they all know is when the company gets small enough, and let's say it's it's the people who are supposed to do the remediation after you leave the place, uh, they may do half the job and walk away. 
and then dissolve the company. And then, well, there were three companies in between us and that person who didn't do their job. Therefore, we're not, you know, we don't owe anybody any money. And that, that kind of cynicism is, is something that I, I am against. If you frack, you have to know what the cost is and you have to pay the cost. Let's talk about a couple of the characters. Your salesman, Sig Rushmore, great name. He's kind of irresistible. He's the one who's trying to get both the ranchers and the Indians to sign off on, on drilling. Where did you get him? Is there a Sig Rushmore somewhere? Uh, I'm sure there is. Uh, you know, the, the landman is, is it's, it's a classic salesman. It's somebody who is charming, who actually does like people, but can deal with the fact that he may be selling them short. And, you know, he always says, I don't think we should think of this as a, a you and us situation, but as a we situation. And, you know, he, he's very good at his job. And by charming somebody in a ranch out somewhere, he can walk away having saved his company a half a million dollars just by having them sign at a certain bonus and a certain moment and a, at a certain percentage. When if, in fact, they got cold feet and waited four weeks, they might get twice that. And the other thing he's tremendously good at is research. Yeah. I mean, everybody wants to come in loaded for bear and he, you know, the county courthouse knows who owns the land. They know whether those people have retained the mineral rights, which you don't always do when you you buy land. He knows when it turned over, when somebody's spouse died, all that kind of information. So he, he seems like, oh my God, this guy's been reading my mail. You know, there's no way around this. He's got the goods on me. And so he, I probably should just do whatever he says. A lot of us know people who are good salesmen, but most of us don't know much about Native American tribal politics. Another one of your great characters is the head of the, the Three Nations Reservation, Harley Kildeer. He's a man who wants the big bucks. Where, where did you get him? Many reservations have some kind of mineral rights on them, and so there were a bunch of situations to um, to choose from. Uh, we were trying to make a movie that I had written called To Save the Man, which was based on the uh, what was going on at the Carlisle Indian School in 1890. And in the course of that, uh, we spent a lot of time in Indian country. Uh, we went to places where you know there would be gatherings of tribes that actually had some casino money or or mineral money, and were looking for investment opportunities, looking to raise money. And in the course of that, I I met a bunch of Native American lawyers. Who, who work for reservations and started to hear stories about, you know, the complications of these things. Many reservations, um, the land ownership because of the, the Dawes Amendment, it, the tribe doesn't own it anymore. In fact, much of the land on a reservation may not be owned by people who are enrolled in the tribe. You know, so you can have these checkerboard situations where, you know, a third of your reservation is actually owned by outsiders, white people. And then there's this other complication that, you know, many reservations will have a tribal police force, but with the way the law works is they can pretty much only arrest people for Indian on Indian crime. So if somebody from the outside comes in and does a crime against somebody who's enrolled in the tribe, they have to call the nearest county sheriff from one of the white counties around them. And there may be five counties around them. And those sheriffs may have their hands full with the people who came along with the drilling in their town. And in your book, the white sheriffs often say, let him go. 
Well, they, they have to prioritize, you know, they have to say, is this serious enough? I got my hands full. One of the things about Yellow Earth is this is based on a, a small city in North Dakota that uh, had 15,000 residents and in six months later had 45,000 residents. That's an incredible invasion. And when that happens, a few people do very well because they, you know, they sign an agreement and lease the, the mineral rights and, you know, they don't suffer too much for, for what they get. Other people make more money for a while because the price of everything goes up and Walmart and McDonald's may have to pay twice as what they were before so they don't lose their employees. And then other people like police and teachers may be on fixed incomes. And they're not making any more, even though the price of everything is going up. And they don't get any more help. So that sheriff doesn't necessarily get the money to hire new deputies. And all of a sudden, there's you know three times more people there. And most of them are young men without women with a lot of cash in their pockets. Yeah, let's talk about the uh, young men without women with cash in their pockets. Would you agree with the reviewer who said that one of your themes is, quote, toxic masculinity? Yeah, I'd say when you get when you get that kind of feeding frenzy, you know, my my previous book, uh, Moment in the Sun, uh, starts during the Yukon Gold Rush in in eighteen ninety seven, and you had the same kind of situation there, where if there were five percent of the people up there were women, two and a half percent of them were prostitutes, and the other were washing clothes and and looking over their shoulder nervously. There is a culture that the town may have had, and that culture is just a tidal wave hits it, and the culture changes overnight. So this is a story about rural America, the a flyover state, terra incognita to us uh, coastal dwellers. Even those of us who've driven across North Dakota, instead of flying over, don't really know anything about the people who live there. We know Right now, all this is Trump country, although the book is set in the Obama years. Uh, you make it clear that we have a lot to learn. Yeah, I, I, I you know, certainly I've been to the town that I'm writing about. I hitchhiked through there, which you actually get a better hit on a place if you hitchhike through it and spend a couple days here and there. And, and I don't think people are polarized in the same way. I think it's a state that was losing its young population. It's a state where there have been booms before and they've all busted sooner or later, uh, whether it was, you know, buffalo pelts or bonanza farms or whatever. Mm -hmm. And there's not really a whole lot of manufacturing up there. And so it's like a lot of parts of the country is what is our future? You know, what, what, what is going to bring income in? And so when a, a phenomenon like this happens, you can't expect people to say, oh, no, you're going to upset the earth, you know, with your drilling, go away and don't give me that, you know, quarter of a million dollars. And, and I think the political thing, what's interesting about that, and, and I deal with a lot of that in, in, in Yellow Earth, is that it's uh, about cultural divides, not necessarily ideological divides. And there's been an effort to tie those two things together, to make culture into ideology. Well, we've talked about a couple of your characters. There are lots more. Mm -hmm. uh, one reviewer wrote, no character is minor in sales's world. That's true of this book. It's true of all your movies, too. You have the same sympathy and kind of detailed specificity for every one of them. And there are so many characters uh, here. How do you do that? 
Well, first of all, I don't think you can tell the story of the the phenomenon without seeing it from a bunch of different angles. I was an actor. I was in two different productions of Of Mice and Men. I played two different characters. When you walk into that bunk room as one character, you see and hear certain things that the other character doesn't. And so I, I, I'm used to having that that feeling of, well... What does this character want? What's he after? You know, what's he going to see? He's going to be totally unaware of some of the other things that the other characters are. There are various ways of making money up here. Well, if you're not a roughneck on the deck, you can make money as a truck driver. You can make money as a pole dancer. You can make money, you know, selling coffee, uh, you know, on a kiosk. If you're a young woman from, you know, I think there were a couple of young women who came there. They literally got a phone booth sized kiosk and sold coffee to truckers in the morning and they made $100,000 in a year. So, so that mosaic approach, I think, you know, gives you a better idea of, of the whole phenomenon. And it's not just a a black and white thing. And there's an awful lot of gray areas in it. The book is divided into four sections, exploration, stimulation, extraction. And the last has the intriguing title, Absquatulation. Have I got that right? Absquatulation. What does that mean? Uh, that's a word from, uh, I don't know if he coined it or not, from, from Mark Twain's era. And absquatulation means retreat without honor. <laughs> and, and usually when there is a bust, people leave and they, they leave their mess behind. There's no money in it anymore. Pack up what you need, what you don't need, just leave it lying around. And then there are the prairie dogs and the woman scientist who studies them, the prairie dogs open the story. How come? Prairie dogs are a cornerstone species. You know, they, they're not exactly endangered, but their habitat is endangered. One naturalist called them the, the chicken McNuggets of the high plains because <laughs> uh, a lot of animals depend on eating them to to survive. And I wanted something that wasn't just landscape to represent the ecology. Um, so I have a character named Leah Nelson, who's a field biologist, and she thinks I'm up here. I'm going to do my little study on prairie dogs. I'm in the you know the back of beyond. Nothing is ever going to bother me here. People drive by on the highway. They barely notice me. And then all of a sudden, she wakes up one morning, and there's yellow police tape all around her coterie of prairie dogs, and she discovers there's going to be a drill platform put there, and and because there's some you know, uh, recognition that you shouldn't just plow them under. Um, Somebody comes along and says, oh yeah, I've got to gas them first, and then we can plow them under. (laughs) I wanted to ask you to read one of my favorite passages. This is the one about your uh, truck driver, Buzzy, who's driving a big, a truckload of drill pipe, hundreds of thousands of pounds of drill pipe from Texas to North Dakota. Yeah, Buzzy's a guy who's... uh, he hasn't been in a truck for a long time. He's kind of wired. He's nervous because he had an accident the last time he was in a truck four years ago. And um, he's just heard that there's big money to be made up in the Bakken range. And this is at the end of, of his kind of no sleep, 30-whatever hours of driving on the road. Buzzy grabs one of his mixes at random and jams it into the slot, cranking the volume up as loud as he can stand. But it's just noise, because the only song he wants to hear, the only true one, is another from his old man's era, Johnny Paycheck, before he shot that fella and made his trip up the river. 
Take this job and shove it. I ain't working here no more. My woman left home and she took all the things I've been working for. Buzzy grinds through to daybreak, crosses the ND line and cuts west on I-94. And suddenly, he's got company. More flatbeds hauling casing. Three low boys carrying thumper trucks with their extra-wide tires. 30-ton winch trucks, tankers, a convoy with various pieces of drill rig dealt out between them. Little knuckle-boom cranes and their big brothers. Coil-tubing trucks, fracking pump trucks with their huge rusty muffler units pounded on top. And Kenworths and Peterbilts and Freightliners and old beat-up Macs. And by the time they all take the U.S. 83 exit at Bismarck, it's a goddamn army on the move. Buzzy getting his third wind from the energy of it all around him till they slow to a crawl on the four-lane and he realizes he's already late to the party. Just look at all these people. Twenty miles short of the Three Nations Res, he sees a new painted sign for Gill's Park and Snooze by the side of the road. But it looks to be only some open space in a field behind a row of storage containers with cots lined up in them. Be sleeping in the rig for a smell. Buzzy cranks his window down and calls across to the white-bearded character driving the drop-deck semi in the next lane. Hey, buddy, it always like this. This time of day, sure, you knew. Started up from Houston yesterday morning. The old man lifts his drill baby drill cap and salute. Sonny, he smiles, welcome to the Wild West. John Sales, his new novel is Yellow Earth. John, thanks so much for coming in today. This was great. Thank you. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. Our show is produced at KPFK in Los Angeles. Thanks to our engineer, Gary Baca, with additional engineering from William Broughton. Our producer is Renee Reynolds. Our senior producer is Alan Minsky. And thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump watchers, if you missed any part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.